the outer beings are perhaps the most marvellous organic things in or beyond all space and time, members of a cosmos-wide race of which all other life forms are merely degenerate variants. They are more vegetable than animal, if these terms can be applied to the sort of matter composing them, and have a somewhat fungoid structure, though the presence of a chlorophyll-like structure and a very singular nutritive system differentiate them altogether from true cormophytic fungi. Indeed, the type is composed of a form of matter totally alien to our part of space. Welcome back to the Red Dice Diaries podcast. I'm John, your host, and that quote before the music there was a quote from The Whisperer in the Darkness by H.P. Lovecraft. And it talks about one of my favourite creatures in the mythos, the Mego. And I got the idea to do an episode talking about the Mego when we were doing last Friday's episode about the Abominable Snowman. And you might say, well, what have these two things got to do with each other? Well, Mego, or a very similar word, is used in the Tibetan language to refer to a Yeti-style creature. And whilst uh, Lovecraft's creations bear very little resemblance to the Tibetan myth of their sort of Yeti-style cryptid, Lovecraft himself suggests in the story Whisperer in the Darkness that perhaps the two legends originated in the same place. And it sort of got me thinking along those lines when we were talking about the Abominable Snowman. So, what are the meat go in the myth? Well, they're effectively an alien, plant, fungal, hybrid race that once had great amounts of technology and membranous bat-like wings which they could fly through the ether of outer space. Well, they don't really work well in Earth's atmosphere. There's a few different races that have similar appendages in the mythos. In the original story, they're formed of unearthly matter that can't be easily photographed or recorded creating a sort of distortion on the film when anyone attempts to do that and obviously given when the stories were written we don't know whether this applies to modern day technology but i suspect it probably does we also find out that they can transport humans from earth to pluto or yugoth fungi from Yugoth being another way of referring to them and back again but only by removing the subject's living brain and placing it into a sort of metallic life support cylinder which they can then attach to external devices allowing the brain inside to see hear speak and interact with those outside and you might be thinking to yourself well what do these creatures have to do with my game and where would i even get stats for them from if i wanted to use them in DD? well i'm looking at a book called realms of crawling chaos by goblinoid games it's described as a book of lovecraftian dark fantasy and is a campaign guide created for labyrinth lord basic or advanced version but it's pretty much compatible with all of the osr games that use DD as their basis and we get the relevant stats for them in there we're told they're aliens native to another plant universe their body resembling a combination of plant animal and fungus however they also bear some similarities to crustaceans having a light red exoskeleton five pairs of multi-jointed legs and claw-like four-fingered hands they can walk upright when they need to 
and they are capable of surgically altering themselves so they can speak like humans, albeit with a strange buzzing tone. And this is one of the characteristics of them from the original story, that whenever they speak, it's through these sort of mechanical, organic augmentations that have this strange sort of buzzing, artificial tone to them. They're also described in the fact that they can apparently alter themselves in numerous other ways as well, giving us the impression that they have advanced sort of bioengineering technology they can use to make them suitable for certain tasks. They mine metals from the ground that are unavailable in the outer reaches they call home. They're amazing scientists, vast knowledges of chemistry, biology, engineering, and the like. And as we've said earlier, they also have the ability to remove the brains of people and place them in these cylindrical sort of uh, life support chambers, if you can call that the sort of strange living death. It's implied that the people reside in when their brains are placed in these as living. So obviously, because this appears in the work of Lovecraft, it's an entity of cosmic horror that's designed to bring an element of alienness of the and the fear of the other into the stories. And that's certainly a way you can use them in your game. Again, all the caveats about sort of horror games that we've talked about previously, you know, keeping the monster off centre stage as long as you possibly can and only having vague hints to their presence applies doubly here. Because as we said in the last episode about the Yeti, any monster that's brought into the light of day and is placed in the spotlight inevitably loses something of its mystique. And that can be a stone-cold killer for the mood of a horror game. After all, you can hear all you want about the savage humanoids that are reputed to dwell in the mountains. However, if they roll out and you're like, oh, it's, it's eight orcs. Any suspense built up, any horror built up, is instantly gone. Now, that's not to say good players couldn't still play through that scenario and have a good time, but it's not exactly the same. And it's quite difficult to run a horror scenario, although not impossible, with monsters that people are familiar with, you know, unless you put a bit of a different spin on them. So the advantage of using creatures like the Mego that not everyone who's a gamer is going to be familiar with, although there's a fair amount of people who like the mythos in gaming, like myself, so people are probably going to have a sort of a, a certain familiarity with them, but because the story itself keeps their motives vague and a little indistinct, no one's really going to have the full story on them. And even if they do, they don't know that's what your Mego are specifically doing. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, John, how come you haven't mentioned Call of Cthulhu yet? After all, there's a game specifically designed to create a mythos story. Well, partly I've not mentioned it because although I've played in a few games of it, I've very much enjoyed them, I don't have a great deal of experience with running Call of Cthulhu because I've never run it, to be perfectly honest, so I don't really feel I can talk about that with any authority. Whereas I've run plenty of D&D and OSR games, so I know a bit more what I'm talking about there. I suppose you could call that my own fear of the other if you wanted to. But I'm mainly going to be talking about D&D games. I also think as well that... Uh, Call of Cthulhu, because it has to explain things a little bit more in order for GMs to feel comfortable with running the game. I think, in a way, 
unfortunately as a side effect to this and probably an unavoidable one it does take away some of the mystery of the various creatures that are in it particularly if you've read the gems guide or whatever it's called in call of cthulhu so i'm not going to go into their exact stats because again i feel like putting stats on a sort of a horror creature like this sort of lessens the horror of the creature itself because anything that's got a stat block can potentially be killed it's why we don't normally bother like statting out how many hit points a god has got in a DD game because if it can be killed at some point someone's gonna try and kill it so now i think you're far better if you're going to use the migo in your game to use them as a sort of plot element and rather than an actual baddie to be killed so how could you use them in your game well i would say the first way you can use them is as a menacing sort of infiltrative threat in a sort of invasion of the body snatchers style in the story the whisperer in darkness they use their artifice their cunning and their technical engineering to effectively replace a man who is in contact with the narrator of the story and use him as one of their agents or at least a facsimile of the man as one of their agents we know that they can extract the brains from people and no doubt use surgical techniques or torturous techniques to gain information from their disembodied captives and i think that's the one of the ultimate horror elements i mean i mean if you imagine how little some players like it when their player characters are taken captive can you imagine if you know you're not only taken captive but your brain is literally removed from your body and unless the Mego choose to plug your brain cylinder in to these items that allow you to see hear and speak you're effectively in a sensory deprivation tank to be honest that sounds absolutely horrendous to me and whilst i wouldn't really advocate sort of just yoinking player character brains out of their heads and putting them in a cylinder because that wouldn't be very fun during the session I think if they come across evidence that this has been done to other people, perhaps NPCs they know, or maybe ones they've even seen since, implying that they might not have actually been speaking to the real person, that you can start sort of laying the foundations of that sort of uneasy level of horror, which you can then sort of ramp up throughout the rest of the session. The next way you could use them is, as we've said, they are scientists and bioengineers par excellence and they seem to have little qualms about altering themselves to make themselves better suited for certain tasks whether that's talking to humans mining rare metals whatever so it seems unlikely they'd have any qualms about potentially altering those deluded people who and cultists who work with them so if you want to introduce like a body horror element to a game the Migo are a good way of doing this because you don't have to confront them directly but if you confront the rejected remnants of their experiments and the poor misbegotten fools who place their faith in them and then found themselves twisted into something inhumane you could really get a great horror vibe from that another way you could use them is you could link them with this tibetan legend of the yeti as hp lovecraft himself did you know they both inhabit mountain ranges of that region remote areas where they're not going to be disturbed which explains why they've not come to light and you or you could use an isolated sort of uh, 
town in the middle of nowhere that maybe is like a staging ground or an experimental area for the Mego, precisely because of its isolation. And then you get that sort of folk horror vibe of people from ostensibly a more enlightened place going into a strange backwater town, finding all manner of odd traditions, which at first seem quirky and harmless, if a little bit antiquated, but later on, as they start to sort of notice the suspicious gazes of the locals, delve into it a little bit more, they start to find out there's something much darker behind this. And we saw this as well in the story A Shadow Over Innsmouth, where at first Innsmouth just seems like a backwater inbred place where all right it's distasteful but you know it doesn't seem really dangerous and then as the narrator gets more into it he slowly discovers the darker creatures that are behind the legacy of the place and why all of the people lurk behind boarded up buildings and rarely go out in the streets during the daylight hours so if you've decided to use the Mega, how do the players actually defeat them? Well, in the original story, they don't get defeated. They pretty much just up stakes and move on, having done their operations in the area. And the narrator finds evidence of their passing, but knows no one will believe him, and it'll be suspected to be fraud. Now, that works great in a mythos story. It might not be too satisfying for a standard D&D game however I do feel that here's where we can take a tip from the Call of Cthulhu game because let's face it in that game you're never going to defeat Cthulhu or the old ones in in their entirety because they're just too massive these huge sort of like extra cosmic entities you're never going to like gut punch Cthulhu or like beat down Hasta it's not going to happen however what you can stop is the cults of people who advance their will in the normal world. So I would advise focusing on that. So perhaps the the player party never really see the fungi from Yogoth, the Migo, but perhaps they're able to stop their cult who are intent on performing some manner of a blasphemous experimentation or ritual that is designed to summon a much worse creature into the world. And if your player characters can stop them, the Mego write it off as, oh, this cult was a failure. They move elsewhere. The player characters find evidence they were once there, but can't actually stop the Mego or see them themselves. But they know they've stopped this cult and they've prevented their dastardly plans. And I think that can work really well for a horror scenario. And also, because the Mego is still potentially around somewhere, it gives you an opportunity to do a follow-up if you want to later on. So there we go. There's some ideas for using one of my favourite mythos creatures, the Mego, the fungi from Yugoth in your D&D games. Hope you've enjoyed that episode. If you want to get in touch with us, maybe tell us how you've used Mythos stuff in your own D&D games. Maybe you want to chat a bit about Call of Cthulhu or anything else we've discussed recently. Even if you just want to have a natter about RPGs, then you can leave us a voicemail message using SpeakPipe or Anchor. Link in the descriptions down below. Or you can send us an email to rddrpgpodcast at gmail.com. Until we see you again, take care, stay safe, and whatever you're playing, have fun. <laughs>